0: You are listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast.
1: Oh, hello. Good evening. Yep, it's me, Emma Goswell. I am back off me jollies, uh, but I have been hard at work this week, of course, making sure that I bring you three more iconic guests. Yep, welcome to my weekend outing. Good evening, it's me, Emma Goswell. Hope you're very well this bank holiday Sunday. And I hope you've had a great two weeks while I've been away. Sorry about that. Uh, Yes, I've been busy pretending to have a beach holiday in Ireland, uh, where the weather was frankly awful. Um, I went eco-camping in County Clare, which I can thoroughly recommend. The scenery was absolutely stunning. Um, However, in our campsite, there were no facilities, no hot water and a violent turkey. No, I'm not exaggerating. Uh, I did attempt to go swimming as well, um, despite the fact that the sea, at this time of year, let me just tell you, is full of jellyfish. Uh, But apart from that, it was a glorious holiday. Always nice to come home, though, as well, isn't it? I have got a cracking show for you this evening. Uh, amongst other things, we're going to be finding out all about Youth Stop Aids. We're going to be hearing the most amazing queer love story. Uh, and first up is a guest who is a real powerhouse of a campaigner. She's even called Lisa Power. Uh, if you've not heard of her, shame on you. No, uh, but you will have definitely heard of at least one of the organisations she set up because she was behind Stonewall even naming it. I'll be chatting to her about the challenges the organisation are facing now, but also about how she's been fighting for LGBT rights since she came out in the 1970s. Good evening. Thanks for joining me. I'm Emma Goswell and this is my weekend outing on Virgin Radio Pride. Now, I like to look back at a bit of LGBT history on this show, as you know, and I like to speak to campaigners that have been out there and gone and fought for our rights that we have today. And let me just say, few people have done as much as my next guest, Lisa Power, OBE, also known as The Matriarch of LGBT Activism, according to Wales Online. <laughs> Do you like that title, Lisa, or not particularly?
2: Uh, well, it's better than the MBE. It's an MBE, by the way, not an OBE. You know, oh, yeah. The- MBE yeah. stands for my bloody efforts and OBE stands for other buggers' efforts. <laughs> I'm so glad you clarified that. That's brilliant.
1: Well, I think I read something that said the Order of the British Empire, which I thought was OBE. It's but, a member
2: of the Order of... Oh, God knows. I mean, I I, I object to it. I don't use it because uh, uh, there's a campaign going that wants to change it to Order of British Excellence, which would be quite nice. Um, and I think a lot more people would accept it then. I basically accepted it because my mother said she'd kill me if I didn't because she'd always wanted to see the inside of the palace.
1: Well, um, <laughs> it must be a quandary, I think, because I've spoken to quite a few queer activists, actually, who have accepted it. And it's it's never an easy decision, is it, really? Because you're right. You don't
2: want to be associated with empire, do you, really? No, but the thing is they're not going to change the name of it till the Queen kicks the bucket. So I'm not, I'm not very active in the campaign because it's kind of like it will happen, but not till the Queen kicks the bucket. So we might as well just hang on. Fair enough.
1: Well, I feel like there's so much to talk to you about, Lisa, from, you know, starting the pink paper to working at Terence Higgins Trust, the switchboard, uh, let alone Stonewall. We'll come on to all of those things. But first of all, because I I do a podcast as well called Coming Out Stories, I'd just quite like to hear from you what it was like coming out. I think you came out in the 70s, didn't you?
2: I did. I came out somewhere around 1976. Well, It was much more painless for me. I mean, there were loads of people who had lots of trouble coming out then. Mm. Um, And I think one of the things is the longer you leave it, the harder it gets. Because you start feeling like you've deceived people or you worry about what they'll say and, you know, all those things. Um, I sort of slid out as soon as I knew, more or less. I mean, I'd I'd known for ages I fancied other girls, but I had this wonderful excuse. I said it it was British newspaper culture, like page three, that had taught me to fancy other girls, which...
1: So it, I was going to say blame Sam Fox, but she was well after the 70s,
2: wasn't she? Oh, she was indeed. Anyway, I mean, basically, when I came to my senses, I was still sort of saying to people, oh, I'm," you know, I, I went to a gay meeting crying out loud and said, oh, I'm just trying to be helpful. You know, campaigner, <laughs> even at that age, interfering with things. So I went along to a demonstration outside British Home Stores was BHS before it collapsed recently. And they'd sacked a young man called Tony Whitehead, who I'm very glad they sacked him because he went on to found the Terence Higgins Trust and other things. Wow. Um, co-found it. And um, there was demonstration outside British Home Stores and somebody said to me, will you hold my placard while I go to the loo? So I did. And the next thing I know, I'm in the local paper with a placard saying BHS unfair to gays. So there Brilliant. you go. Um, so and... you were
1: sort of a reluctant activist to begin with, then. You only, the whole... I was, I'm not an activist. I'm just holding it for someone that went to the loo. <laughs>
2: well, I was just, you know, I was making an excuse. But uh, honestly, I mean, the whole town knew as soon as I did. So uh, and I was like a duck to water. So chose... and they had sacked him for being gay, and that was legal then. Oh God, yes. No, there mm. were no protections until. Nearly the 2000s on most of this stuff and and onwards. I mean, people, people forget really easily how recent it was that we were completely unprotected. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday and she was really shocked to discover that, you know, women could have their kids taken off them for being just being lesbian Um, and you would automatically lose custody. And when I was on switchboard, I used to take calls from women who said, well, yeah, I'm in love with my best friend, but we've agreed we're not leaving home till the kids have grown up because otherwise we'll lose them. God, you know, you're
1: right. I think people do forget, don't they? Just quite how awful it was before all these, uh, you know,
2: and, and you could rights came in. Mm. Yeah, you could be sacked for being gay. You could be sacked for having HIV when HIV started to happen in the 80s. But we were not protected in in any way. and it's really interesting the only thing that people remember about the legal struggles is the age of consent stuff for gay men Um, and they always think oh well as a lesbian there wasn't much that affected you was there it's like well no only everything else Mm. Um, you know employment um, finance family law we were discriminated against in every possible way and it took a long time to all that stuff through
1: so after the um, protest against British home stores, was there one thing that just really got you and just thought that got you involved in activism? Or as you said, was it all of those other things?
2: Well, I think the thing was, I used to say that I thought maybe I had a bit missing, but I don't think it's that I had a bit missing. It's that I didn't, hadn't been hobbled by something that other people had been hobbled by, which is I could not understand what was supposed to be wrong about being, being lesbian or gay.
0: Mm. I just
2: couldn't understand it. What's your problem? You know, um, if you're straight, what's your problem with someone else being gay? More for you, love in what you're after. You know, leave leave people alone.
1: And did your parents think the same way? Did they support you?
2: Um I've only had a mum at that stage, although she went off and got married to someone fairly swiftly after that. I was quite no. glad that that, got her out of my hair, but, I, as I but um she was fine. I mean, she she'd been uh, a rebel. She I was I was um illegitimate in the nineteen fifties and my mother kept me she forged she's made a false declaration on my birth certificate to keep me wow quite it, rare she yeah. have been married to my father abroad so you know the, she was a bit of a rebel herself and I I don't think she's ever really had that much trouble with me being a lesbian and, le- and I, I think her main thing was just don't get into any terrible trouble love. Mm. Um, and uh, you know she has been very proud of me she's in a care home now mm. and care assistants read if, if there's an article about me, the care assistants will read it to her and show her the pictures.
1: Oh, I bet she's incredibly proud. But uh, you didn't quite stick to her um, advice to not get into trouble, though, did, <laughs> did you really? <laughs> you've been quite a nuisance oh, most of your life, haven't,
2: haven't you? <laughs> I haven't been arrested very often, and I've never been convicted of anything, so, you know, yeah. I'm doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> Out of all the stuff that you've done,
1: you know, is there one thing that you're the most proud of, do you think?
2: I, I, there's lots of things I get proud of. I mean, this year... I'm really, really proud of having been asked to do the historical checking on *It's a Sin*, the TV series. That's my this year's. Oh my god, I'm so proud about that.
1: Well, of course, because um, you
2: and you and uh, old
1: Russell are, are uh, good friends, I assume, aren't you? Being, well, being sort of we've... A A A grade gays from
2: Wales. <laughs> well, actually, um, when I moved to Wales, we were living in the same block of flats. So yeah, it was kind of handy. Um, but no, I mean, Russell talked to a lot of people for that series yeah. and I think, you know, there's a huge number of people who helped out. But when they rang me up and asked me if I'd do the, the fact checking for them, as it were, I was just ecstatic. And then when, when I saw it, I howled with laughter because I'm directly underneath the intimacy coordinators, which is a wonderful <laughs> line.
1: <laughs> but I think um, from reading another article about you, you said that it was, it was very triggering being involved in it because yeah you know I think a lot of and Russell himself had said you know people had asked him why he hadn't done a a drama about that subject and he said he just couldn't face it for all those decades it was still so raw and so difficult for people that went through the 80s it was it was tough
2: right I don't know anyone who went through um what happened with AIDS in the 80s who was you know like involved in the mixed gay movement or care in any way who isn't still traumatized in some way and i think for mm. a lot of people it's a sin was kind of cathartic on that i mean mm. i cried my eyes out after episodes three and five um, mm. and i knew what was coming you know yeah. um it was incredibly important to do that and and i love it because it was so incredibly authentic i mean i was not responsible for anything like i mean the sets friends of mine who were with me on switchboard in the 80s just went how did they do that because it was like being back in the phone room for the the scenes yeah. that are in the phone room. That is the switchboard phone room.
1: And what was that like working on the switchboard in the 80s? In it was London? amazing.
2: I, I mean, I've been involved in lots of things that I am proud that we did. Stonewall and the International Lesbian and Gay Association being the first queer person to speak about our rights at the UN it's all it's it's lovely stuff and I've been incredibly lucky and I am shameless and I you know give me an opportunity and I'll seize it with both hands which is why I've been so lucky you know it's it's, luck is there but you also make it Mm. but switchboard was incredible I was on there for 14 years and it was like incredible finishing school for gay activists and so many people who went on to become either lesbian and gay or HIV activists came through switchboard and you learned so much from the callers it was absolutely incredible I mean we've rowed like cat and dog in the organization I look at the log books now and I'm like oh my god how did people ever put up with me but you know it was incredible and the callers were amazing.
1: But the callers were going through tough blooming times weren't they and I mean Mm -hmm. you started taking the first calls from people who were worried about HIV or AIDS when there wasn't even a name for it and people didn't really know what the hell was going on right?
2: Well, that's right it was it was some um, gay cancer or gay oh, play yeah. to start with yeah. and then gay related immune deficiency grid and we spent a lot uh, several years in the 80s not really knowing what was going on and making it up as we went along about hiv saying to people well we know a lot of people are going to die we don't know if everyone's going to die and people coming up with these mad theories like it was caused by poppers or it was caused by having too many sexually transmitted infections and ruining your immune system and all kinds of things and none of them made any sense if you looked at the range i mean the only thing that made sense if you looked at the range of people who were getting it was that it was bloodborne and and sexually transmitted as well and that's that was what Everybody eventually realised.
1: Eventually, yeah. But I mean, I remember being a teenager, a young teenager in the 80s. And I remember when Rock Hudson died and that was a big moment. But Mm. the misinformation was ludicrous. I mean, we literally used to think that we'd catch it going to, getting it off a
2: toilet seat. But the thing was also, before we had treatments, and remember we didn't have any really effective treatments until the mid 90s and even then people didn't trust them for a while people made the most amazing bargains with themselves about about stuff you know I had one of my best friends would not drink um carbonated drinks he somehow he decided that carbonated drinks would make his immune system deteriorate further oh, I did suggest to him that the cocaine and and rum would probably do it quicker but he wasn't giving them up
1: yeah, god bloody. Um And then you went on to work for Terence Higgins Trust as well, didn't you, because of all your expertise? I did. I did. Yeah. Well,
2: I danced around Terence Higgins Trust from the start and I can remember being on the phones in Switchboard and listening to some of the male Switchboard volunteers behind me talking about helping out this new charity that was mm-hmm. being created and... And I was an advisor to them about funding at a very early stage because I was working for local authorities. I was, a, I was one of the early AIDS bureaucrats when it came down to it, basically, because I'd worked with drug users and I'd hung out with gay men um, and I knew about AIDS, but I wasn't either a gay man or a drug user. And somehow they thought a lesbian would be less trouble. <laughs> 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 they found that one out the hard way Um, how how wrong they were yeah so I had a very successful and flourishing career as an AIDS bureaucrat from quite an early stage because somebody had to make the plans about you know what the services were going to be and stuff like that there was a lot of guilt at first we we were like oh we shouldn't be taking money for doing this we should only be doing this as volunteers Mm. nonsense we need this done properly and so it's happened. interesting that you
1: mentioned that you were just surrounded by, you know, you were surrounded by gay men essentially, weren't you? You were well, and, and was yeah, that weird yeah. and did they accept you or did you did you have to sort of fight for your position amongst all the gay men?
2: Oh, you had to fight for your position. I mean, you had to fight for yeah. your position anyway and even more so if you were a, a woman because, mm. you know, sexism doesn't, fa- you know, fail to take with gay men, there's plenty of sexism in there. Mm. But I was always part of the mixed gay movement. And I'm using the terms for, from the time. I mean, now I'd say I've always been part of the queer movement. Mm. Um, but for me, I'd come out in a small northern town, Lancaster, and we'd all hung out together. I mean, we all went to one disco on a Friday night, Quack Disco, because nobody else would have us except for the Catholic <laughs> Club and Quack Disco. And I hung out, you know, we all hung out together and we stuck together and we did things together. And I came down to London and I lived in a, in a well, we would have called it a mixed lesbian and gay um, short-life housing place. But we when it came down to it we were polymorphously perverse we got up to all kinds of things which all disappeared in the 80s when we all pretended everybody was 100% straight or 100% gay for about 20 years which was incredibly unhelpful actually yeah Um, and wasn't what I was hearing on the phone switchboard at all but Mm. I think we felt embattled and so you know we went for very rigid demarcation which some people are having little trouble letting go of this day but um I went to switchboard rather than lesbian line. I used to get I used to get asked why Why are you on switchboard and not lesbian line? Because the fact was there were more women calling switchboard than called lesbian line, um, and I was the second lesbian back in to switchboard after all the women had walked out to form lesbian line. But people called us because our phone number was much better known. It was on a Tom Robinson. EP, which was kind of um, record at that time, young people. Um, And it was in lots of libraries. And the London Gay Teenage Group used to put stickers with Switchboard's phone number in every book with reference to to gay life in the library so that people would find our phone number. They were absolutely brilliant. And they used to stick it, you know, they used to, if anyone was staying in a hotel overnight, they'd sticker the page in Leviticus that was read about Oh, fun fantastic yeah. i love that it. so all these people had our phone number and we got plenty of calls from from women and from lesbians oh, but um, so it I've... was important to be there
1: yeah, I have to say there's one that one bit in um Pride, the movie, that I was always really disappointed with. And it's the bit where they sort of take the mick out of the lesbians, because the lesbians are always breaking off and forming their own groups, aren't they? And it's um a bit disappointing. But I guess that was reflective <laughs> of the time a bit,
2: was it? Well, A, it was true, lesbians mm. could go off and form lesbians against pit closures. And B, it was also true that the men took the piss. Mm. Hope. So actually, um it's not that you know, but but yeah, there is there is an issue with with you know, there are slightly more lesbian jokes and gay jokes in that film. Oh. Um, I forgive it because it, cause it it's, it's like some kind of mascot film down here in South Wales, I'll tell you. i
1: bet, <laughs> i bet. bet. Um, so much to talk about. We've not even had time to talk about the pink paper. We've talked about uh, the lesbian and gay switchboard. Um, we've talked about all manner of things that you've been involved in. But um, we must talk about Stonewall. I guess that's the thing that people... Remember you for, or, or think of you being associated with? I guess is it?
2: I want, I want to know why you think it's the elephant in the room. Because I'll talk about switchboard till the cows come home. Oh no! Um, I'm terribly proud.
1: No, of I it. just I just meant that we'd forgot we hadn't mentioned it yet. I was like, we've got we can't do all this chat about all these other organisations and not get oh, no. on to talking about Stonewall.
2: Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm reacting to the fact that there are some people who are being pretty crappy about Stonewall at the moment. Um, yes. And they need their heads red. And a couple of them are actually people who were founders. It's my generation. And they other people in it bloody let me down by becoming rigid, conservative with small C people in their old mm-hmm. age. And they don't like things being different from when we were younger. Well, things weren't perfect when we were younger. They're not perfect now but they're different and they're actually an awful lot more open and free than we were you know we had a lot of rules that have disappeared in the diversity of of what's going on now in in our, what i'll call it what young people call it which is the queer movement yeah.
1: um, well it's interesting isn't it because uh, if, if you go back about 10 years then stonewall was criticized for not supporting trans people and trans rights, and now they have been criticised for supporting them too much. Well,
2: Stonewall uh, did, did a number of fairly weird things um, a decade or two ago, uh, which I did fall out with it fairly comprehensively for, it's got to be said. Um, I mean, they weren't very good on trans, and they, they didn't start out by supporting equal marriage. Oh, by, they came to their senses and then tried to claim claim it as their victory which was slightly naughty of them really yeah. but nevertheless i'm proud that we started it I and mean, we had no bloody idea what we were doing when we started it i mean we had no clue it was going to turn into what it has turned into but i'm also very proud of stonewall now and nancy kelly the chief exec is an amazing woman um and i have a number of friends who work for stonewall people I used to work with at Terence Higgins Trust, people I'm friends with here in Cardiff, and they're all amazing. You know, they care about people. And then I see the attacks that are made and it really annoys me that Mm. people are narrow minded and they want to exclude people from our movement and they want to make divisions and they want to try and pretend that you can't be a feminist and support trans people. And that is nonsense because the vast majority of feminist lesbians I know are perfectly happy supporting trans people. But there's a very successful lobbying attempt going on to drive a wedge in spheres of influence, like the media and Parliament, to say that there is a problem, that there is, you know, that somehow you can't be pro-feminist and pro-trans, and that is absolute nonsense, well, then, I'm glad
1: you. I'm glad you didn't swear then, but I feel like I'm sure that you feel like you really want to because I well, think I'm as annoyed as you are about the whole thing. Really, it's I've, just. It's, I've
2: had I've had some more abuse today. More. I mean, in the past, I've been told I'm not a proper lesbian. I'm. I've even been told I'm not a woman actually, which is quite fun. It's like what? you like to come round and have an examine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, like, I that's essentialism. But you know, it was like hello. You know, I think there are quite a lot of people who know that I am both a woman and a lesbian. Um, and I won't have you telling me I'm not a feminist. But, you know, today I've had people going, oh, what have you ever done for women? Just, well, you what? Can't. it's, what? you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm cocky. So I'm 66 and I don't care. Um, and I also have 14 years on switchboard being abused by the, the very finest possible people who could abuse you I mean I'll tell you the sort of abuse calls we got on switchboard the stuff I get on twitter is nothing so I quite enjoy was this homophobes ringing
1: up back in the day was it
2: yeah mostly homophobes but also just people I mean the 80s were an absolute hotbed of everybody telling you the right way to be gay as well I mean if you 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 must have heard of the rebel dykes and the the, yeah. the the rebel dykes of London. Amazing, some of them my mates to this day. You know, we were all told the right way to behave all the time, and I was never very good at doing it. Um, which is why, in you know, in the eighties, I founded the first uh, lesbian-run mail order sex toy business. Did uh, you? Know? I didn't. I, I didn't have that in my notes, Lisa. <laughs> And I had never used a sex toy in my life. But people were being, you know, you can't do that. So I was not having it. Me and my mm. me and my partner at the time started um, something called Thrilling Bits. <laughs> it ran through three brilliant mail order catalogues. Before, no longer with us, is it, sadly? No. I, well, um, my girlfriend broke up with me and I, I we sold the business. Um, and it ran itself into the ground. The person who bought it just... Ran it into the ground because actually the genius of it was the the very silly catalogues which um, I and another woman called Linda Semple had written. But yeah, I mean, you know, show me a show me a taboo, and I like to give it a good poke. Uh, well, <laughs> it's have, funny. I've
1: got I've got a friend that was um in London, and you know, probably at the same time as you, I should think, seventies and early eighties, uh, and lived in these sort of all. Uh, all female squats mm. and it was very, very, but it was very, very strict. And she fell out with them, got into yeah. massive trouble because she wanted to have a man come and visit. And it was like,
2: what? Oh, no, no, no. no. That cannot oh, happen. God. Yeah. No, there were real angst issues about male children in some of those, those. Um, that was it. She said people. that
1: as well that one woman ended up leaving because she had a son and then the son got to about mm. 16 or 17. They're like, oh, no, we can't stay here anymore. No.
2: Yep. No, that's, that's absolutely right. Mm. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've never been hot on rules. I've always been one for poking at stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Is it Stone true Walton. that you
1: came up with um, the name for Stonewall at your dining room table?
2: Yeah, my kitchen table, yeah. Your kitchen table. Me, me, and, me and my partner at the time, we were sat there with um, a guy called Douglas Slater, who was actually um, a very senior civil servant in Parliament. He arranged all the business for the um, Tory uh, leader of the House of Lords. And he was the secret genius that helped us start Stonewall and and help us understand all the parliamentary systems. Him and a straight woman friend of his and Jenny and I sat around the table. And I was very keen on calling it Stonewall because, I mean, the the story we sold it to the others on was um, that Stonewall means something to lesbians and gay men. But it means absolutely nothing at that point. I mean, everybody knows about Stonewall now. But in those days, if you were a Tory MP, you'd have just thought it was, you know, a, an architectural consultancy or something. You know, you, you didn't have a clue. And you, you could, by the time they realised what was going on, we were in there in our suits talking to them. Fantastic. Um, but the reality of it was that when it came down to it, I knew Stonewall was going to be super respectable. And I came out of the not super respectable movement. And I wanted Stonewall to stay tethered. And so I wanted it to have a name that it could never forget its roots. And that's led to some very funny situations since with people going, how dare they call themselves Stonewall when they're so respectable? Well, that was the point. Mm. That was the point. Nobody in Stonewall can ever forget they started with a riot. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah.
1: and but it's 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 interesting all the trajectories that's gone. But 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 one of the sad things I saw literally this week was that um, Ofcom have now pulled out of the diversity training. So and again, mm-hmm. this, this is all the row about trans rights,
2: isn't it? Well, it's absolute nonsense. I mean, somebody's got to somebody senior in Ofcom, and oh. they've played that record about trans rights and women's rights being in opposition, and oh. that is just such nonsense. But what you've got is you've got a generation of middle-aged straight men who've been told that they have to genuflect to feminists, but they've got the wrong feminists they're talking to at the Haven't moment. They? It's also, this has been fed by the media because they love oppositions, so they love to make things difficult and talking points, and I'm afraid it's been fed by some of my fellow activists who have been willing to participate in debates with anti-trans people and talk over the prone bodies of trans people and feminist lesbians who support trans people. Mm. And I'm guessing you're referring partly to Simon Callow are you? Well no Well, Simon Callow I would not uh, deign to call a gay activist in any way shape or form I mean quite a nice man who's obviously been fed a load of um I've don't know what i can call it that wouldn't be rude um what's really peculiar about simon callow is that he worships april ashley who was one of the first trans heroines in this country Um, and i would love to know what she would say to him from beyond the grave about this nonsense Hmm. yeah he's he's drunk the kool-aid no i'm i'm talking about frankly this week Peter Tatchell who's agreed to a debate about the whole thing without talking to a single trans person as far as I'm aware and there's a hell of a lot of people very very upset but he's not the only one Mm -hmm. you know there are plenty of people who who are just enjoying having a row and that's not helpful. Where do we go from here then, Lisa?
1: Because you're you're you know you've been used to campaigning pretty much all your life. Where do we go from here? I mean, there's still you know you you must feel pretty frustrated actually. You've come so far, and yet there's still so much to fight for, isn't there?
2: Well, I feel horribly vindicated because I always said to people, rights can go down as well as up, and I'm horribly Mm. being proven true at the moment. Mm. But you know, we need to fight. I mean, one of the things I have these. Old people conversations with with Michael Cashman from time to time, and we were like, mm. oh, you know, they don't know how bad we had it in the eighties. We should go and do, you know, two hander talks about, you know, this is this is how bad it got, and you can stand up to it. You know, look what happened after. You know, we mm. stood up to it. It's very stand up toable, but I think the trouble is, people like instant positions at the moment, and that's not good, and they're not listening to the people whose lives are being wrecked by this. And they're not looking at the history because mm. everything that's being said about trans people now was said about lesbians and gay men in the eighties. And okay. you cannot deny that, the, you know, all the records are still there for us to see. And this is another moral panic and it's an unacceptable moral panic. And people are gonna be deeply ashamed of themselves in another tw- 10 or 20 years time. Yep. We've just got to get through and we've got to keep saying no. I hope you're right,
1: but it's that line, isn't it, where people like Simon Callow are saying things like, oh, well, they're trying to make young people transgender and you you can't make, like the same way they used to say, they're trying to make young people gay. And you you, you know that you can't do that.
2: You can't. I'm rather hoping that Ian McKellen will just sit him down and have a little chat with him. Mm. because you know, Ian understands all of this completely and he's had a long time (laughs) thinking it through and he's been very careful. But no, honestly, I mean... you know, there are some celebrities who've cottoned onto this. You know, if you look closely, there's far right money going into all of this. Mm. And it's it's cult-like. It really is cult-like. And it's quite frightening in a way, but it it doesn't frighten me. And therefore, I feel I am one of the people who should step up, not speak on behalf of trans people, because nobody can speak on behalf no. of trans people but them, but speak from my perspective of someone who had this done to them in the 80s and knows what it's like. And isn't putting up with having people try it on again for our allies. Yeah, exactly. So what, what can we do then? Can we
1: what should we everybody, be doing as people in the community?
2: Well, everybody can be a good ally. Um, hmm. you can educate yourself a little bit. Um, I would recommend um Christine Burns has a really good book, which is an anthology of, of people talking about being trans. Um, Sean Fay is about to have a new book out, which is all about being trans and I wish I could tell you the title of it because I've forgotten actually read some stuff from trans people who have lived that meet some trans people and actually start to do some critical thinking about what you're being told and whether it's true or whether people are taking really extreme or exceptional things and making generalities out of them Mm. like they did to us in the 80s they would find pedophiles and claim that was what all gay men were you know It's
1: depressing, isn't it? But uh, we will keep on fighting the fight. And thank you for inspiring us and and fighting so many fights uh, ahead of us. Um,
2: I I love it. I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't love it. Nobody (laughs) ever tells you. People get very solemn. They go, it must have been terrible in the 70s and the 80s. It really breaks their bubble when I go, I had a lot of fun. Yeah. I had a lot of fun. If you're a sloppy person, you will have a great time being an activist. Try it out. (laughs) And on
1: that note, we'll leave it there. Lisa Power, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for talking to us and thank you so much for inspiring us. (laughs) Uh, A big thanks to Lisa. Lisa Power, if you just tuned in, you missed an incredible interview with an incredible woman. Um, She's fascinating. I literally could have talked to her all night. She's so inspiring. Um, I know she was a reluctant campaigner, but to be, you know, campaigning about LGBT rights in the 1970s was not easy. It was no mean feat. We've got a lot to thank her for. That is not the end of all some LGBT folk though. Nope. In the next hour, you'll meet a queer couple who have been together 18 years, uh, through thick and thin, through ups and downs, and they can give us a real lesson in what it means to love. Oh, that sounds quite cryptic, doesn't it? Evening. I was going to say, I hope you're enjoying the last bank holiday of the year because someone put that on Twitter the other day and I thought, hang on a minute. Is that it? Shall we get some more? We've got ages to go before the end of the year. There is actually one more. I've just checked on uh, December the 27th because Christmas Day falls on a Saturday this year. So not technically the last one of the year, but the last one for a little while. Uh, Coming up next, you're going to meet a woman who thought she was straight until she met the love of her life and then identified as a lesbian. Then her girlfriend told her she was trans and wanted to transition to become the man he was always destined to be. She now identifies as pansexual. Well, you'll hear the heartwarming love story of Hendricks and Risha. Good evening and welcome to the weekend outing with me, Emma Goswell. Um, time now to celebrate relationship goals, I would say, because I'm going to introduce you to an extraordinary couple. I have, um, hand on heart, been proud to call them friends over the years. Um, But when I met them, they were in a sort of different relationship. I I think it's fair to say their relationship has been through many ups and downs over the years, not least um, Hendrix transitioning in the middle of the relationship. But they have been together for 18 years. Uh, Right. Proud to welcome to Virgin Radio Pride, Hendrix and Risha. Good morning, guys. Morning, Emma. Morning. How are you doing? Oh, I've just realised I said morning and it's supposed to it'll go out in the evening, but never mind.
3: Evening, Stop. Emma! <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, I'd like to celebrate sort of coming out stories and relationships on this programme. And it's hard to know where to start with you two, because I guess you've both had different coming out experiences, haven't you? So, because when I met you, I think it's fair to say you were in probably what would be described as a traditional lesbian
3: relationship. Would that be right? Yes,
2: definitely.
4: we had cats.
3: Yeah. So, yeah.
2: <laughs>
4: Yeah, definitely <laughs> traditional.
3: <laughs> we moved in really quick as well,
1: so yeah. Oh, proper st- stereotypical lesbians, then yeah, <laughs> yeah.
4: Where we did were you badge wearing lesbians?
3: Oh, and where did you meet? Um, at work, actually. I was uh, Hendrix's boss. <gasps> I do so, not think cool. I knew that. Oh, yeah, definitely.
0: And and, and and
3: Hendrix actually got a, a toaster oven for recruiting me, so you know.
4: Brilliant win
3: win win win. So, did you not identify as a lesbian before then, sure Um, no, no, I um, I wrongly identified as straight, and I was in a traditional sort of straight marriage. We had a, a little boy who was four when I met Hendrix, and um, but I was always unsure if I was actually straight, just if that makes sense, but. At the time, um, it wasn't really a a thing about lesbians when I was in school and when I was growing up. I didn't, I didn't, I was very naive and I didn't really know that existed. I don't know how, but... (laughs) Well, no, this
1: this wasn't exactly the dark ages, was it really? But it's very easy to be closed off to things, isn't it? And to not know any other LGBT people, I guess. yeah. It was the Dark Ages in Cardiff, though. This this was Cardiff, was it? Okay. No,
4: it all makes sense.
1: It was. Cardiff's Cardiff's a very progressive city. I've spent some time there. There's a bit of bustling gay scene now. It is now,
3: but Mm. in the 70s and sort of early 80s, it wasn't. So when I was sort of growing up. But, um, yeah. And then I, I, I was working in the care industry and there was quite a few sort of LGBT people there. And I got quite curious, but I didn't know what to do about it. And then I met the wonderful Hendrix, who completely swept me off my feet and it was love at first sight. Was it really? What was it like for
1: you, Hendrix? Was it also love at first sight?
4: It was, so I'd just come out of a long-term lesbian relationship, moved from Brighton to Manchester, got a job with people learning difficulties. Mm. And I was told to go up and get this induction. Um, It'd take about 20 minutes, you go up there, you get to know uh, one of the managers, Risha. She'll show you around, show you the ropes, that sort of stuff. Um, And I walked into this house, walked into the kitchen and the guy that was with me um, said, you know, this is Risha poked my head around the kitchen door and there was this amazing it was the back of Risha at the time she was (laughs) standing there making gravy for the Sunday dinner (laughs) romantic um how romantic and then she um and I can remember exactly what she was wearing (laughs) I can remember how she was standing and she turned round, and and it was just one of those real kind of Heart skips a beat moment.
1: Oh, and Risha, the way you're looking at Hendrix as he's saying that is just so beautiful to watch. I'm sorry, more people aren't on this Zoom meeting to see the love between you two. It really is extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> oh, so I, I guess there were quite a few sort of battles to go through before you could become a couple then, because. Rachel, you were still in a relationship, were
3: you? Or no, I wasn't in a relationship. Yeah. We were actually um, in the middle of a divorce. I I was in the same house, and I'd moved into the spare bedroom. So, and it it was quite quite traumatic. <laughs> well, and and up to that moment,
1: I guess, did you think that you were straight? Was it really meeting Hendricks that made you think? Oh, actually, hang on a minute. I've
3: got feelings here for somebody. I'm attracted to someone here. Yeah, yeah, completely. He just completely swept me off the of feet. And I think we spent every single day together after we... we, I mean, the meeting, the half-an-hour meeting turned out to be something like six hours, didn't it? We just didn't stop talking. Was and... it a
1: meeting or a date,
3: Risha? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a date. It was definitely a date. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, obviously, um, so we were... Well, Hendrix was quite young and... Um, 24, and I was 34, and I had a little four-year-old, so, you know, it took quite a while for him to decide whether we were going to get together, and it was a a big commitment from the start, to be fair, but we eventually got together and never looked back, really. It was um, amazing. It was phenomenal. So, did you have to win around a bit, then, Hendrix, to begin with?
4: Oh, listen, I turned on all the
1: charm. (laughs) 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 I,
4: I came out with every... I was a really, I'd like to say confident, but I think I was really cocky. Mm. <laughs> I was a really cocky, 24-year-old, real deep-rooted, seen lesbian
2: yeah.
4: who'd just come out of Brighton mm. after living there for five years. Um, and I was just very like, what do you mean you're straight? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> What's this concept? I've not heard of this.
4: <laughs> you know, I, I, I was very... No, there's, there's only a couple of beers between a straight woman
3: and a lesbian. I'm sorry. <laughs> Turns out it was a couple of um, aftershocks. <laughs> And for years and years, so we went. We went out to the village for on on the guys that we were going out to oh, the, um, the,
1: the gay village in Manchester for our international yes. listeners. Yeah.
4: Oh yes, yes darling, yes. the best village. Oh yeah, yeah
3: the only village. Yeah. <laughs> on on the guys that I was, um, I I can't even remember what excuse he came up with, so we went out and then he plied me with um, aftershocks, and then. And That'll then for years and years, he told me it was me who jumped on him, until he confessed um, not long ago that it was actually him who pinned me to the wall. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my word! And was it surprising for you at the time, Rachel?
3: Were you sort of ready to go? To go for? Oh, a, I was. A I was ready, re- ready and willing to go. I tell you, because um, I just, I, I think I did. I just fell head over heels in love, and it was just. It was just awesome, so oh, I was I was more than willing.
1: <laughs> and what was the process for you like then coming out? Because I'm guessing, you know, you were in your mid-30s, you'd had a relationship with a man, you'd had a child. To all intents and purposes, you presented as straight, so most of your friends and family would have thought you were straight. Was it was it hard to come out under those circumstances?
3: Um, do you know what? No, I, I told it, my friends, and they weren't even surprised. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I have one friend who went into shock and didn't talk to me for about a week because she kept going, what? I don't understand. My mum turned around and went, oh, I've always wondered what it's like to be with a woman. So <laughs> for me, Classic. it was really, really easy. And I didn't get any sort of abuse, anything. It was everyone was really accepting until um, a couple of years later. I was because because everyone kept saying, oh, Everyone gets called names and stuff. And I never experienced it. Mm. And I and I rode past someone on a bike once. And this guy went, Oh, you dyke on a bike. And I actually <laughs> stopped the bike and went, Thank you. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs>
1: I think you're the only person I've ever met to like celebrate a homophobic comment. But I suppose I you I suppose because you sort of present as quite straight, you know, it was quite nice to be acknowledged
3: in a way. Yeah, it was. It felt really good. I felt I felt like I belonged then. I felt yeah. like I'd made it. <laughs> and then
1: did you embrace the gay li- Gay lifestyle? It sounds like such a cliche, doesn't it? What I mean is, did you embrace the gay world? Did you go keep going out oh, in gay God, clubs? Yeah. Did you go to Pride? Did you become part of the community?
3: Yeah, completely. We joined a, a lesbian football team. We had all gay friends. We lived the lifestyle. We completely just had the most amazing time. And it was just fantastic, wasn't it?
4: Yeah, we... um. There was probably about 30 of us <laughs> that just, that, that was our, most people have kind of close knit groups of friends that are maybe four or five. Yeah. But there were 30 of us and it was, you know, we were the only one with a child. Mm. We were the only couple that were together at the beginning and still together now. Yeah. Um, We were the only couple that didn't sleep with anybody else within the group.
3: Oh, no,
1: more lesbian cliches. (laughs) Sounds sounds like a Manchester
3: version of the L word. It was. It was. It was phenomenal.
4: It was absolutely brilliant. And we were the worst football team ever, ever to have existed. (laughs) But we enjoyed it and we loved it and we made... Amazing friends, um, some that we've lost along the way, sadly. Mm. But it was just, yeah, it was really good, fun times.
1: Yeah. But despite all the fun times and meeting the love of your life, I guess there was something in the back of your head, Hendrix, that, that um, wasn't happy and wasn't comfortable.
4: I think that was at the back of my head since I was probably about nine or ten.
2: Yeah, um yeah.
4: I remember being at primary school playing football out on the field and it was during the summer and all the, I would, I would have been nine or 10 and all the, the boys took their tops off and carried on playing football. Um, so obviously I just took my top off and carried on playing football. Mm. Um, I need to be stopped by a, a dinner lady or a lunchtime assistant, sorry, <laughs>
2: yeah. as they're now known.
4: Um, to be told you're a little girl, put your top on. You you can't run around with your top off. Um and that was a bit of a revelation, to be honest. I was like, am I?
1: That's interesting <laughs> really? though, because I was running around with my top off all the time. Cause I, when I grew oh. up in the Middle East, because it was bloody hot. So I just I oh. didn't and I never ever wore bikini tops. I just didn't see the point in them really.
3: Well, uh, they,
4: yeah, I was just very I was in my sort of nine-year-old brain, I was really perplexed uh, at yeah. why, you know, because I'd, I'd just been on holiday, and so I had, I had a skinhead, because that's, that's what my gran insisted, because we were going somewhere hot. So she took <laughs> me to the hairdressers, and I got a skinhead. <laughs> um, and then, and I never wore a top when I was in Majorca on that holiday, yeah so i didn't really i could i just i just couldn't get my head around it it was really <laughs> confusing um so yeah so from sort of the age of 9 it was it was always there always there and i'd told my previous girlfriend you know that i was essentially i was in the wrong body and and it wasn't you know um and she you know bless her, we're still really good friends, but she just, that was not what she signed up for. You know, it was, it was very clear. It was, I'm a lesbian. I date women. Um, So I just packed it all back up in the box in my head and just left it. Because Um, you knew that your
1: partner at the time wouldn't accept it.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And I, and I think I, I, I wasn't ready to accept it. Yeah. You know, I was 21, sort of between the ages of about 19 and 23. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't ready to accept it. Um, and my biggest fear was my mum finding out. You know, that, that was my real, that was my my sort of stop block, really.
1: Because you were convinced that she wouldn't accept it? She wouldn't
4: understand it? Oh, I, I thought that would that would be it. You know, I would I would either lose my mum or I think my biggest fear, if I'm really honest, was that it would kill her. I was oh. like that, you know, that would that would just devastate her and she'd never recover. Um, so I just kept it hidden and it was it was easier that way at the time.
1: Yeah, But obviously, yeah. Um... You did go on to come out and transition. So I tell you what, let's take a break now for a tune and then come back and find out how you got to be strong enough and how you eventually went through the transition and became the person you are today. Thanks for joining me. I'm Emma Goswell, and this is my weekend outing mid-conversation with a couple who I've always admired, uh, not least because they're on a homeless charity called uh, Coffee for Craig in Manchester, but because their love and their relationship is just Well, it's what you'd always want for for yourself, I think. Their love is just so powerful and extraordinary. Uh, They are called Risha and Hendrix. And uh, just before the music, we just heard um, the beginning of Hendrix, your your coming out story, really, in terms of accepting that um, you were trans and you, you wanted to go through this journey to become the man that you were meant to be. But I guess it was quite a long journey, wasn't it, really? The last thing you said was actually i just couldn't tell my mum so it was very difficult mm. for you to come out right
4: yeah my that was my biggest fear was was my mum and my mum's approval and i think i found it difficult enough coming out as gay and she always thought it was a phase once once you've got it out of the way it'll all be fine i think i was 18 when i came out as as gay yeah you know it took me about 2 years i think to pluck up the courage to actually tell them And when I came out as a lesbian, I told my dad first. And then, like the wuss that I am, I told my dad that it wasn't to tell my mum until I was out. Oh, God. So I I sat my dad down and I said, look, I I need to talk to you about something. Um, And um, I I don't know what, but um, I'm a lesbian. My dad was 50 when he had me so he was an older dad but he was really progressive and really accepting and so switched on um, and he basically said i thought you were going to tell me you were pregnant
1: <laughs> classic thank
4: god for that um and then he said i don't care what you are and who you are as long as you're a kind person but please don't walk up and down Streatham high road with a banner <laughs> and really? that was his response I guess he had these visions of like, you know, going to some pride march or something with this massive flag-waving, you know, flag-waving lesbian running around. So I just bought the t-shirt instead.
1: Which said what?
4: Vorsprung dyke technique, I think it
2: said. (laughs) And (laughs) another
4: one that, that said, yes, I am. And I used to wear it all the time and my dad used to just sort of look at me and go... Yes, I am. What? Uh, What exactly? (laughs) Make him chuckle.
1: But he was cool then. But was was your mum cool in the end?
4: She was indifferent. I think she was. It was very out of her realms of normality. But she loves gay men and she Mm. loves the scene. But she just can't get her head around lesbian community. So that was. It's a phase. You'll grow out of it. Well, I never did. Or maybe I did, actually.
1: (laughs) Well, you're now, to all intents and purposes, a straight man, but you probably don't feel like a straight man, do you? Oh, God. Do Do you you? know
2: what?
3: It's just complete opposite of a straight man. (laughs) You were more (laughs) of a straight man when you were a lesbian, to be honest. Now you've completely enveloped and embraced your feminine side. And it's, you know, just because you're just so much more comfortable in yourself and true to yourself and happy
4: yeah yeah just a lot more confident when when I look back that's when I can really see how uncomfortable I was in my body and in my skin you know I I struggled with my identity and I think identifying as a lesbian was the 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 easiest option I guess for me Um, obviously it's not an easy option for everybody and you know it's not an option is it? it it's who you are and and who you're attracted to is never a choice. It just is what it is. Um, But for me, it was, it really was a choice between, I knew I was attracted to women. There was absolutely no way I was attracted to men, but I knew that I wasn't just attracted to women, but it was a choice between it's socially acceptable at this moment in history to be a lesbian, Mm. but I'd, I'd I'd come across trans women within the community, but I'd never met a trans man. I mean, at the time, you're talking like 90s, early noughties. Yeah. There wasn't the access to the internet in the way that there is now. Mm. I just hadn't come across anyone who transitioned from female to male.
1: No, you're right. I mean, they were there. There were a few people out there, but um, few and far between, you're right. and it's mm. um, And it's very difficult to be who you want to be if you can't see that represented anywhere, isn't it?
4: Exactly. I, I had nothing, nobody to kind of connect that feeling inside of me and, and connect that with anybody that I could either watch in the media or see. I couldn't even see trans men on the internet.
1: Yeah. So what I've... changed? It wouldn't have just been the fact that... Um... You couldn't see people on the internet and then you could see people on the internet. Was it also something within yourself that you were just so unhappy that you
3: had to eventually tell someone and eventually tell Risha? No, to be fair, um, Hendrix told me our first kiss. Oh, really? So I knew from the very beginning and I was just like, oh, okay then. Not knowing what it meant, really. I was like, yeah, that's cool. Because it wasn't Hendrix the girl or the lesbian that I fell in love with it was Hendrix the the person the being the soul that I fell in love with so I didn't I didn't care I just wanted to be with him Hendrix was always completely honest and we kind of throughout the years dipped in and out of it and came out went back in came out went back in so it was it was always an issue that was there looming and we talked about it and searched for people and Sort of, I think it was just a very, I'm sorry, I'm telling your story, but it was a very progressive. But it sounds like you did do it as a couple then, which is
1: extraordinary. And it sounds like you wanted to tell Risha, you knew Risha was the one from that first moment. So as soon as you were in a relationship, you were keen to tell her the real you, I guess.
4: Yeah, I just wanted to be honest because I think I'd been in a relationship before where I wasn't able to be authentic. There was no way I wanted to commit to a divorcee with a four year old and at the age of 24 make that much of a commitment so i didn't want to get in that situation again where a couple of years down the line i've committed to this little boy and this amazing woman only to discover that actually the biggest part of my being is not going to be accepted mm. again so i was really really honest and and mm. straight from the start and throughout the first 13 years of our relationship richard would constantly when are, <laughs> <laughs> when are you coming out? When are you coming out? When are you So there was a couple of occasions one in particular where I got very very drunk one night lots of the girls around the house and I just I went on the internet and I changed my name by deed poll to Finlay
1: <laughs> Okay you didn't stick with that then?
4: <laughs> no you no. didn't stick with that one <laughs> And then I woke up in the morning sober and decided that that was not the way I wanted to go and just, you know, pushed
3: it all back to the back of my head. And uh, yeah, but you've left out know. the bit where you, you announced very proudly that you were going to be a man or you were a man. And all the girls, we were all sat around chatting and whatever. And he went, I've changed my name to Billy and I'm a man. And everyone kind of went, oh, OK, then. And everyone was so accepting were they? Really? Because yeah. we had such a really good bunch of friends and, again, nobody was shocked. Nobody <laughs> <laughs> batted an eyelid. It just went,
4: right.
1: Well, uh, uh, <laughs> and was that great or slightly disappointing?
2: Um,
4: <laughs> if I'm honest, at the time, it was really disappointing. <laughs> I think because what I, what I was searching for, and I couldn't see it at the time, but I can see it now looking back, what I was searching for was somebody to actually step forward and say, what do you mean? Are you sure? What does this mean? Right. I was looking for that question and answer kind of session where I would be able to talk about it.
1: But it sounds like, um, you know, from then, that 2005, to actually going through, um, you know, the stage of getting hormones and then having surgery, there's always, there's a lot of years, aren't there? It's a long process.
3: Um,
4: yeah so it it wasn't until the 29th of February 2016 is is my anniversary. Oh I like that that's a great one. That's that's my um my second birthday. I'm like the queen I have to... say
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> And what um, happened
1: on that day then?
4: On that day so um if you kind of cut forward to sort of 2016 I was I was on a a mental health pathway called the personality disorders pathway from the age of about 11. I've really struggled with my mental health. Mm. So I've had, you know, numerous suicide attempts. I've really, really battled with, um, what at the time used to be borderline personality disorder. Now it's emotionally unstable personality disorder. It's almost like manic depression or, or bipolar, And I think a lot of it was to do with the fact that I wasn't being my authentic self and the Mm -hmm. fact that I was so trapped and I couldn't be me. And I was so overwhelmed with the world around me and I just really didn't understand where I fitted in. So I was I was in quite a long term therapy setting and I really, really connected with my um, community psychiatric nurse an amazing, amazing woman called Mm -hmm. Tracy, and she saved my life. So it would have been the 27th of February. On the Friday, I'd gone to see her. We'd done our kind of usual sit-down, chatting through stuff, and I'd already come out to her previously. So it had been the topic that wasn't the topic. It, Mm -hmm. It was the one thing that i wouldn't talk about but i really desperately needed to talk about yeah. but i didn't want to talk about it and she kept pushing away at me and and just kept you know trying to fight my corner and then on on the friday i was in crisis essentially and on that friday i think the last thing she said to me was what are you going to do are you going to wait until your mum's dead before you come out Hmm. and that that just really hit me and that and that for me that was that was my really earth-shaking defining moment when I just suddenly thought she's right what what am I gonna do am I am I gonna wait for the passing of my mum before I can live my life why why am I not being the authentic me because I'm so scared to offend my mum
2: mm-hmm.
4: and you know I'm pretty sure when you sign up to be a mum you, you you're you supposed to just love your kids no matter what as long as they're kind nice good people
1: exactly as your dad had said yeah
4: so that was a Friday on the Saturday I pretty much lost lost my head a little bit and then on the Sunday I basically just turned around to Risha and said, get in the car, we're going to my mum's now. Risha looks terrified at the, mem- at the memory of that. <laughs> <laughs> so then we turned up at my mum's, they're watching TV as usual, put it off and put it off and put it off, didn't say anything, just, you know, normal conversation. And then I kind of digged Risha in the leg and went, you tell her, you tell her. <laughs> I can't tell
1: her. What a responsibility,
4: Risha. What a responsibility. And then I got up and went to the toilet
3: and ran away. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, oh, God, what are we going to say? What are we going to say? And I just kind of went, Hendrix wants to talk to you both. So they kind of went, oh. So the telly went off and we just kind of sat there in silence and waited for Hendrix to come back from the toilet. (laughs) Because oh, I couldn't do it. That wasn't my my responsibility. So I kind of
4: walk kind of <laughs> in and there's this <laughs> silent atmosphere of God knows what they thought I was going to tell them. <laughs> I mean, you know. And I kind of sat down and, and just went, um, um, I'm a man. <laughs> just came straight out with it and just went, I'm a man. Uh, you know, you know how how I thought I was a lesbian and I thought I was. But I'm not. I'm. I'm actually. I'm a man. And my my dad just kind of. Oh. Oh, all right then. Well. Wow. Okay. What do you mean? I'm. Not, I'm not sure what that means. What? Do, what? What? Do, I. am not sure. And my mum. I don't know if I can say this on the radio, actually. But. <laughs> my mum's response was, "What? What? What? What are you talking about? Why don't you just get a." D- like all the other lesbians (laughs) oh my god so that was Uh. that was my mum's response and then my mum's not a big big one for talking about feelings feelings and emotions um Mm. we 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 don't discuss them we just get on with it it's not so much like that now it's there's there's been a massive shift in my mum and how she responds to me and responds to people around her and things like that so
1: that's good. I mean, she could have done yeah, a worse, worse reaction, I guess. So she didn't throw you out. She didn't
4: reject you. No, she she really, really struggled with pronouns. She really struggled with using my name, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be.
1: Mm. Um. So yeah. So I just want to fast forward a bit now. So obviously you went through the transition. You've done that. Um. But Risha, what what was that like for you? Um. You know, initially having your first lesbian relationship and then
3: discovering it wasn't going to be a lesbian relationship after all I always knew so Mm. it was that part wasn't a shock at all I Mm. think I was always like yeah that no that's fine and you know this is what this is how it's going to be and we did all the research together we went through it completely together I think what I wasn't expecting was the loss of old Hendrix Mm. and the the feelings that I would have with that and I kind of did go through a period of mourning even though Hendrix is exactly the same person there are changes and differences with the hormone I think it changes certain aspects of yourself not not, not to mention the physical appearance and the the, mm. the growth of hair and stuff oh suddenly also, suddenly a
1: big beard
3: that you're I know now. it's a <laughs> huge bushy beard I think the the, the newfound confidence because I'd always been being there and being the person who who is at not the caregiver, but the person who was always the one who was needed, the strong one, where all of a sudden Hendrix became the strong one. So there was a little bit of role reversal. I didn't need, I could let go of that and become vulnerable myself, which was really, really strange. So there was a little bit of sort of mourning going on, even though I was so happy that Hendrix had become more confident and happier and practically straight away, you could see... Just this whole relief and tension, tension completely just fall away. And this whole relief and the person that had always been in there bursting out. So it was bittersweet. But the the weirdest thing, especially once the tea started um, coming through, was testosterone. Yeah, the testosterone. Yeah, Yeah. was the changing voice and the and the and the beard, and it felt really weird. And it felt like I was having an affair with someone, and that was (laughs) I was not prepared for that at all. It felt really really strange, and I felt somehow I was being disloyal and being naughty and like being with someone else and that 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 was the part I wasn't prepared for at all it was it was so very strange
1: well it's one way of keeping the relationship fresh isn't it
4: I
3: suppose well well, yeah yeah (laughs) oh and every now and then I'll just shave my beard off and it's
4: like all over again (laughs) (laughs) so Risha
1: when you were growing up um, and when you got married I guess you thought that you were straight then you decided perhaps you were a lesbian how do you Identify now because I guess it's, it's it's neither of those, is it?
3: It's neither of those. No, I, I guess it would be um pansexual because yeah. it's not about any sort of gender. It's about the person and the and the spirit. But I have to be honest. I love being a lesbian so much that I probably still identify as a lesbian, <laughs> <laughs> which is really strange because I've got a husband and I refer to Hendrik as he, obviously, mm. and. You know, you kind of go yes, lesbians, but and then go yeah, I'm married to a man. Mm. So oh, but are you married? Because
1: there's a sort of well legal loophole
3: going on there, isn't there? Exactly, exactly. We got we got we, we got a civil partnership because it wasn't it wasn't a marriage at the time, was it?
4: No, it wasn't. It wasn't legal um, to get married when we got married, so we had a civil partnership. Swinton Registry Office. It oh, was beautiful. Yeah. So we we had a civil partnership legally binding. So I think the, the, the first step in the process was to change my name by deed poll. But now, because I've changed my gender marker on my passport and my name, I'm no longer the person that got married to Risha in a civil partnership. So we're no longer, so I'm kind of still asking all those questions of various sort of legal buffs in the community. Sounds it's, like you need
1: a good family lawyer, then, but really.
4: Yeah, but try finding one.
2: Mm-hmm. You
4: know, it's really difficult to find someone in the community that really understands that because it's such a legal mess. You know, there, there's no easy answer.
1: I shall make it my mission to find one then, because there are good LGBT lawyers out there, I'm sure. So it sounds yeah. like you need to be put in contact. Anyway, before we finish, I just wanted to ask, you know, what is the secret? your love and you know staying together through thick and thin over 18 (laughs) years you know there's no mean feat what would you say is the
4: secret go on you go first
3: I think for me it's honesty and just being with your best friend Mm. I don't know trust honesty and just talking about everything and anything and there's just no jealousy because I don't see the point in it and and also the the willingness to love that person so much that you let them you would let them go I don't know if that makes sense yeah. just to be the true self if they're not happy then you can't be happy I, I guess Kendrick,
1: sounds like you picked a good one there
3: <laughs> yeah she's all right isn't she I, I think <laughs> I'll stick with her
4: to be fair I'm, I'm, I'm only staying now because you know I'm committed to Sam our son <laughs> you know i've i've always i've always said that i just would not you know I'd, I'd try and work through everything for me the secret to a long and happy relationship is ride the waves mm. because there's many 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 of them allow yourself to be vulnerable always 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 be true to yourself try not to argue try to debate always maintain respect for your partner so If they're speaking and you don't agree, try to just take a breath. Try and understand from their point. And playfulness in the bedroom always
2: helps.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it and I love you too. Thank you so much for sharing the the story of your relationship and uh, some secrets to staying in love there. That is absolutely brilliant. Um, And before you go, just give a quick plug for your charity and where we can find out more information because as well as having relationship goals you also run a brilliant and sadly much needed homeless charity in manchester don't you
3: we do coffee for craig so if you if you want to find out about us come and visit us on facebook and twitter and i think we're on instagram as well aren't we and we've got a youtube channel so wow. just google coffee for craig it's number 4 and you'll find us all over go and do it and donate and give them some money Yes. And come and volunteer with us and come and join the happy family that we've got. I want to
1: say a big thank you to Hendrix and Risha. Such a great love story. It, it must be a romantic at heart, really, because I love hearing love stories like that. Um, also, if you want to find out more about their amazing charity that they run, offering support, food, showers and medical help, amongst other things, to those on the streets in Manchester, then please go to their website, coffeeforcraig.co.uk. Uh, And that is four, as in the number four, and not F-O-R. Good to point these things out. Right, stay with me here on Virgin Radio Pride. Loads more to come tonight. Hope you're well. Thanks for joining me. Hope you've been having a grand old bank holiday. And if you're in Manchester this weekend, then happy Pride. Uh, Yes going to say they come around quickly but they don't do they when you don't get them because there's a pandemic on um anyway one of the most important bits of that event for me personally anyway is the hiv vigil that's run by george house trust takes place at the end of manchester pride and it's unmissable really it's such a beautiful but emotional event when we remember those we've lost to hiv and aids there's also a lot of talk about hiv stigma which is sadly something that's not gone away completely And coming up next, I'll be talking to a gay man who's been living with HIV and done all he can to help others and stop the stigma surrounding it as well. His name's Alex and he is from Youth Stop AIDS. You'll meet him next. Good evening, thanks for joining me. This is The Weekend Outing with myself, Emma Goswell and I always like to speak to campaigners on this programme, people with an interesting story to tell and shine a light on some of those brilliant campaign and support organisations that you may not have heard of. Uh, Shamefully, I'd not heard of you Youth Stop Aids. I'm going to put that right now because I'm going to speak to Alex from their organisation. Alex, thanks so much for joining me this evening. Thanks. Tell us a little bit, before we find out a bit more about you and and all the campaigning that you do, about Youth Stop Aids. I think it had a different name originally, didn't it, back in the day?
0: Yeah, so it it starts off as Student Stop Aids, God, over 10 years ago now, um, Mm -hmm. and uh, changed its name to Youth Stop Aids uh, to really align with our our values as an organisation and actually uh, moving outside of university. So it was set up as u- lots of university groups across the UK. Um, and then we've ended up, lots of us graduated from university and wanted to carry on d- on, uh, on yeah. campaigning. So uh, you know, it's all about empowering the youth voice at the end of the day.
1: And it is a, a youth-led organisation, isn't it? It's not sort of top-down. It's young people saying that mm-hmm. they want... Well, I think the main aim is to stop AIDS by 2030. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's, that's right. So that's in line with uh, the Sustainable Development Goals from... Um, Uh, from the UN. So uh, SDG3 is all around uh, a healthy uh, society Uh, and within that it's ending uh, AIDS, TB, malaria. So uh, we, we sit within Sustainable Goal 3. Um, and uh, very specific campaigning on, on on really pertinent issues, but then we align with lots of other campaigns as well around gender equality, sexual health, reproductive rights, etc. Uh, but yes, mainly about ending AIDS by 2030.
1: Well, I want to go on to find out a bit more about your campaigning, exactly what you've been doing, and, and maybe as well like how people listening can help. Um, but I'd like to talk to, about you and your journey, if that's OK, because you... Yeah. you've you've already let me know before we even started recording that you're an out and proud gay man and you are living with HIV can you take me back to that moment when you got diagnosed and what that was like for you
0: yeah sure so the year was 2014 um I was in my very early 20s I'd I only recently moved to London and I'd uh fallen into a bit of a bad crowd in London uh, and decided to spend some time at home with my family. So I'd moved back to to Norwich, where I'm from, uh, with my family, and I started losing weight really quickly. Um, And I was like, finally, my metabolism's caught up with me. Turns out that was wrong. Uh, And I started um, getting these weird bruises all over my body and my face was becoming very gaunt. and, And so... Uh, I went to the doctors. They didn't know what was going on. Eventually, they went, "Oh, you're gay. Maybe we should test you for HIV." And I, I'd, I'd actually already had a test for HIV a couple months previously and tested negative. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out it was it was in the window. So there's a four week window uh, in which, when you've contracted HIV, that it may not come up as a positive test, um, which is why we encourage people to test regularly. Uh, and so what happened is I assumed I was HIV negative, yeah. uh, and so the doctors didn't know what it was. So I went to the I went to the gum clinic and I had an HIV test. And, and back then we, we don't have what we have now, which is rapid a- HIV testing. Back then it was a three to five day window uh, in which um, the test it took for the test to come out. Which, an an-
1: uh, which is an anxious three to five days, isn't it?
0: Well, it's weird because I wasn't anxious because I was like, "Well, I haven't got it. It's fine." And then but, I and, and then I got the call from from a doc from a nurse, and the nurse said, "You need to come into the clinic." And I was like, "Really sorry, I started a new job, can't come in." Duh, 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 duh. And he went, "Well, I hate to hate to tell you this, but uh, the test has come out positive." And it's weird because in those moments you don't, I didn't hear you have HIV. I heard your test has come out positive and I was like, okay, I did it? And then it hit me like a train and it was uh, probably one of the, the, the toughest moments of my life. There's a lot of, we talk about a lot of the stigma around HIV and 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 actually the stigma that other that, that society and et cetera puts upon you. But you also put a lot upon yourself. Hmm. You know, I, I went to university, I'm an educated guy, I, I work in marketing and I was like, you know, that's... That didn't happen to people like me, Um, but actually it can happen to anyone. HIV doesn't discriminate. So at first I was like, how could you be so stupid? Um, And eventually, you know, I I ended up having to go for lots of tests and uh, lots of support. And the NHS, especially the, the Bloomsbury Clinic in London where I was treated, were in incredible they literally saved my life mentally and physically and I, and I and I it turns out I had something called thrombocytopenia which is a condition in which the HIV was killing all the platelets in my body which meant I couldn't clot blood and so uh, I ended up getting wrapped in a uh, wrapped in a blanket put in a wheelchair and wheeled into an e within within three days of finding out I was HIV positive because uh, I had we now call late stage HIV, which is I was known as a late diagnosis, which traditionally was known as AIDS, but now is, is seen as a, a late stage a diagnosis, which is, is when HIV has has compromised your immune system effectively, and you become so very. It, young. Is
1: that quite rare, Alex, for to have those sort of symptoms all over your body as soon as you've been um, diagnosed? I would have thought. Yeah, so my
0: condition, yeah, um, but. HIV, and one of the reasons we haven't found a cure for it yet is HIV is so different for every single person and -hmm. how the body reacts to it is so different for every single person. So for me, uh, within six months of diagnosis, I was effectively very, very ill. But people can go 10, 20 years without knowing their their status because they don't get, uh, it doesn't affect their immune system. It's just different for every single person.
1: Yeah, it's funny, it's reminding me of another pandemic that we're dealing with at the moment. So, yeah, it it can be very confusing, can't it, really, for people?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and there's lots of things. So living with HIV, you know, I take three pills a day and um, I'm generally fine. Um, But it does do some things like it, it ages your, um, because of the, the medication you take can be a little bit toxic to the body. Um, it does mean that some of my organs are aging a bit quicker than than they would naturally. So I have to watch out for my liver function. Um, I have to think about keeping healthy and well, which was really difficult last year during lockdown, uh, and, and keeping my body in the best possible shape it can be in. Because it's weird things like, I found out from my dentist the other day that people living with HIV are more uh, susceptible to gum disease. They don't know why. But it oh. is, <laughs> Um, and so there's just lots of little things where we thought an effective treatment to stop people from you know progressing onto late stage HIV. In the UK, that is. and um, we have we have it globally, but there's been some there's still a lot of adoption challenges around the world. But um yeah, in the UK, generally speaking. From a physical perspective, we we now have a, a treat straight away directive from the NHS. So, it's just, so as soon
1: as you got diagnosed, you were given the right medical treatments yeah, and you yeah. were given the right drugs that you needed, yeah.
0: Um, which we didn't used to have. Uh, before, it they, they used to be, well, we'll wait until they start getting ill and then we'll give you the medication. Whereas now, because they know how effective it is once you go on medication, everyone, the moment you're diagnosed, uh, you're recommended to go on treatment. Obviously, it's your choice, but but, but generally speaking that's what happens. But where the situations in which a lot of the, the age-related deaths we still have within the UK are generally around stigma. So for example, um, a story from one of my uh, Youth Stop Aids colleagues um, around her community in London, she's Ghanaian, and there was a lady in her church um, who was too scared to get tested for HIV because there's so much stigma around it in certain communities. Um, and, and therefore, she was untreated, and she ended up dying uh, of an AIDS-related illness. Uh, because she was too scared to go and get tested and then treated. Uh, And she could have lived lived a long and healthy life, but she was... So
1: sad, isn't it? But you you were quite confident that you would get the right treatment that you deserved straight away. And it would have been so easy for her life to have been saved.
0: I think because uh, one of the things around young people, uh, and I'm using me with that term now, but I'm I'm on the older side of young now. Um,
1: Yes, um, early 30s, darling, don't worry. That's still young to me.
0: I was in my mid-20s, it's fine. (laughs) Uh, And um, for young people, you know, we programmes like It's a Sin and, and, and those kind of uh, of seeing things on television is the only real sense that we get from um, what actually went on in the 80s. Now, the heartbreaking thing is we lost a generation of gay men uh, and, and the, the art, the culture, the history that we lost by so many of our community dying back then. Means that we don't have as many stories from back then, uh, 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 and so I find it fascinating talking to colleagues within the HIV sector, people who have uh, long-term survivors of HIV, who have a, a sense of the survivors' guilt, et cetera, around. Uh, and there's so much uh, trauma still from that, that that period that for young people we can only experience that through storytelling. And so it's why I absolutely adore the people I work with, especially the, the very younger campaigners in their sort of their teens and early twenties. that, that have taken that and run with it because they don't have that specific pain. Um, that, that, that a lot of people still. It's, it's
1: interesting, isn't it? Because because I'm a little bit older than you. I I lived through the 80s, and I remember being terrified of AIDS, and the misinformation was ludicrous. I remember believing because this is you know what was in the public sphere that I could catch AIDS from a toilet seat. You know, this is the sort of misinformation that was around in the 80s, and it was considered, and it actually was a death sentence. And things have changed dramatically since then, thank God. But do, do you think there's a sense? Because I sometimes get the sense that. Young people that didn't experience that and have no idea how awful it was have become slightly complacent and more lackadaisical with their sexual health, maybe.
0: So yes and no. Um, I think that, that we had a period of a couple of years between uh, of the the you know that, that we were able to very confidently say that you know once on an effective medication that you can live a long and healthy life. And also, you can't pass it on. Between that and the NHS approving uh, PrEP um, as a prescription, um, and now that we have PrEP, young people—it's it, you know it, it, a lot of people that I young people I speak to—PrEP is it's just something I take, you know, and, and it's fine. And they've got that tool. Uh, you pre-exposure prophylaxis—the drug you can take to stop yourself from getting HIV. Now that we have that. Um, young people take that quite quite naturally, but there was a period from the, the end of the message that AIDS was a de- uh, HIV AIDS was a death sentence and where we are now, and with, with having prep on the NHS, that period was when we saw a lot of infection in, within the mm. young demographic. Where we are now is you know it's exciting to see that you know that the news coming out of Dean Street etc of you know. Uh, the the massive drops in HIV infections in the UK and I always said when I was diagnosed in 2014 when I became an activist about a year later I wanted to be one of the last people to be diagnosed with HIV and uh, what's really exciting is London is the first city in the world to reach um, uh, effectively the, the goals of, of uh, uh, in terms of number of infections and number of people on treatment and number of people living a long and healthy life with HIV in the city, they're, they're one of what's called fast track cities, and there are a number of fast track cities around the world, like New York, etc., who are doing it, where there's a governmental, a local government commitment to ending HIV, new HIV infections in their cities. And so London's paving the way globally, um, which is really exciting, um, but there's a long way to go.
1: So the the actual rates are dropping massively. Then,
0: yeah, absolutely, and it's it chokes me up thinking about it because mm. the first time I ever said I'm HIV positive in public was at a rally outside the Department for Health um, for PrEP because it took a long time for the NHS to prescribe PrEP um, or to approve it for, for 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 prescription, and so we had these wonderful community led organisations like I Want PrEP Now and PrEPster mm. who yeah. were. Having to find uh, PrEP suppliers in India um, and other countries, testing it first, and then creating these community-led organisations, because the NHS just weren't doing it. And it was such a heartbreaking, well, it was such an empowering time for those people, but, uh, you know, we can't afford the £400 a month that the the branded drug in the UK was back then. And so now that we have the access to generics, etc., we're in a really good place in the UK.
1: Well, for sure, we would not have got all the advancements we have and all the free healthcare we have without people like yourselves and organisations before you standing up and fighting for the cause, to be honest. Alex, we've talked a lot about, um, already a bit about your campaigning and uh, work to try and get PrEP and various drugs available. Let's just rewind a little bit, though. Just be interesting to talk to you about... What it was like when, you know, we talked about what it was like for you when you got the diagnosis, but what about in terms of telling other people, because there was one really interesting statistic on your website, I think, which they did some surveys around mental health and confidence, and actually only 15% of young people felt empowered and confident enough to share their diagnosis. Was, Was it really difficult for you as well?
0: absolutely um i think if you told 2014 me where i am now talking to you on the radio i would have probably screamed hit you in the face and run away um (laughs) okay (laughs) uh, because i was terrified absolutely terrified and 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 i talked to you about this idea of the self-stigma the stigma based on yourself is so massive but the fear of rejection and that's compounded for especially for for out out gay people for example and the trans community and, 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 and everyone the whole LGBTQ community we all have to come out and because there's a fear of rejection when coming out as lgbtq absolutely um, so when i told my family i was I, I was gay they were fine with it but all of a sudden when it was hiv i froze up and the thought of telling my parents was horrifying and i thought i was going to get rejected you know, my family who loved me unconditionally and have they were marching through, I was living in London, they were marching through Norwich Pride, waving the rainbow flags, covered in glitter, so proud of me.
1: But they probably had lived through the eighties and seen that it was a death sentence and they maybe weren't as up to scratch as you are now with all the recent developments in HIV. So you were probably worried that they thought that you were gonna die in a week, weren't you?
0: Yes, to a certain extent, and you know, I did get that. I have had that reaction from some people. Um, I think we're in a better place for education now than yeah. we were back then, and it's great to see so many big organisations talking about it and national media explaining our narrative, which is uh, really empowering. So, I, you know, I told my parents, and they were wonderful. And you know, I told my stepbrother, and he was like, "Right, how do I raise money for the Terence Higgins Trust?" Um, you know, right. my family have been incredible, uh, but uh, you know, I've had to go through a process, and it's a weird one because. With HIV, because of the misinformation, you find yourself becoming a counsellor to the people you're telling. And, and as you say, you know, I, I told a friend and she just burst into tears and she was like, I, I just want to be there for you until the end. I'm like, that's about 70 years, so you're good. Um, and, and and you know, t- immediately telling people, I'm fine, I'm going to have a healthy life. But also, I remember I was so scared to tell my friends who have kids because I was like, "Please don't allow me around your children. Like, I'm not infectious. I'm not going to like touching them. Is not going to? Is going to give it to them?" They're like, "It's fine, Alex. That that's not going to change." And but that's the level of irrational fear, yeah. I do, which was I was going to become isolated and ostracized by my friends outside of the gay community, but then within it, there was a lot of you know we were the butt of a lot of jokes. Um, you know, uh, and, and so telling my 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 LGBT friends was almost more terrifying than it was telling my uh, my straight friends
1: but your parents were were good they were supportive they were educated they knew that it um uh, they were totally
0: no. educated them <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, and they've been they've been wonderful ever since um and and you know been been really great and you know part of my becoming an activist and becoming a very loud voice around hiv is because of my family because i i i had a network and a safety net which meant i could go on national television or talk to you without fear of anything uh, you know without fear of this level of ostracization and isolation i was going to be okay and that's why i did it because i knew that i had an obligation whereas there are so many people out there who don't have that opportunity who whose parents won't listen to them whose family won't love them unconditionally because um they don't understand it the fear and the stigma overrides that that that, that sense. that's right the,
1: the stigma is 100 still there i think but um was there a particular thing or an issue or a moment that led you to change from being that sort of nervous person about telling everyone about your HIV status to becoming this big activist and working for Youth Stop AIDS,
0: it was a process. And I think yeah. like I said I, I I was very closed about it for a very long time. And then I was at this this rally outside the Department for Health around Prep, and they went quick, somebody needs to talk. And I was like, yeah. And so I had a microphone, a megaphone thrust in my hands, and I'm saying, if I didn't, if, I, if Prep was available, I wouldn't be HIV positive. And I was like, oh god, I've just said it out loud. Ah. Oh. And from that point on, it became a process, and and I and I started talking about it. And then I got told about this wonderful organisation called Youth Stop AIDS, and I was invited to become a, a speaker. So one of our main events every year, unfortunately, we weren't able to do it last year or this year. Cool. was our speaker tour, where we get we go around universities and towns in the UK, and we bring uh, two people from the UK or from or UK and Ireland living with HIV and an international speaker. Last year, well, the year before last, it was someone from the Ukraine. The year before that, it was someone from Malawi, um, before that from Kenya. And we bring them together and we take them around the UK and they tell their story to young people. And it's the most empowering event for someone living with HIV. Mm. But being in the audience, which I also have been, it is the most empowering thing for activists and it's incredible.
1: And how do the kids react? Are they, are they amazed or do they do they sort of know, know everything about HIV already or there's still, still a lot of ignorance out there?
0: It is one of the most amazing experiences and i'll never forget being in front of about 200 students in brighton at the university of sussex and i have never felt so safe in such a big room of people and it was so supportive and they were so caring and they all came up to me afterwards and they wanted to find out more they wanted to hear more about my experience but also they were so open To that level of authenticity, because it's so scary saying, This is how I contracted HIV Mm. in front of a room full of people. It's fine me talking to you because I can't see all all your listeners. I've been talking (laughs) to you all the time. But um, when you were in front of a lot of people, it's terrifying. And it was such a warm, energizing uh, environment that it was just absolutely wonderful. And and yeah, there was a, I didn't realize that, but more around a lot of people think HIV, the HIV epidemic is over. It's not. We're doing really well in the UK, but globally, we've still got so far to go. You know, the fact is, it's still the second biggest killer of young people worldwide. Uh, A million people each year are still dying of age-related illnesses from a condition that I'm going to live a long and happy life with, and it's just absolutely heartbreaking. So there's a really-
1: massive health inequality going on there, and, and is that because um, they've just not got the access to medications because of their governments, or is it, again, the stigma or a lack of education, or a bit of both?
0: So there's a number of things. One, which is that um, heartbreakingly the UK government recently announced a massive slash in aid, and at the moment the UK mm-hmm. is, is, if not the leading, one of the leading funder of aids programmes worldwide. Wow. Um, because we're a global leader when we cut our budget everyone else is going to cut their budget and it, it was heartbreaking and i had a cry when that went through parliament because it's going to affect millions of people and so in terms of health inequality um, yeah, access to medication and access to treatment is difficult in rural communities Uh, For example, you know, you have young people walking for days to get to a clinic to be able to get their medication. Um, But there's also so much stigma in a lot of those communities. So, for example, uh, South Africa is the the highest percentage of people living with HIV in the world. They've also got the biggest HIV programme in the world. Um, in terms of medication and treatment, which has been supported by other countries but also by their own government. Um, but because of the, the rural communities in South Africa, because of a lot of the stigma still with a lot of communities, there's still this really negative perception around and misinformation around how you can track it or how you can get rid of AIDS and HIV uh, in, those, in, those, in those communities. There is still so much work to do around the education and stigma piece there, because actually the, a lot of the infrastructure is there at the moment.
1: Yeah. Um, so so what are you stop aids doing then i mean I know, I know that lobbying is uh is some of your work isn't it and judging what you just said about the lack of funding i guess that's an important part of your campaigning is it
0: yes uh our campaigning has taken a bit of a swerve over the years i think um we there was a number of uh core global development funds that we we pushed the uk government to to fund so the robert carr fund and um, Uh, among another number of other funds yeah we lobby the government to make sure that they are funding now obviously with this cut we're now in a position where um we are we are engaging with the government and trying to get them to make sure that they're still fence funding to end aids because i hate to use the term no one is free until we're all free is it has to be a global movement in the same way as the covid response which is that um what we're saying is that that we've now got a global infrastructure in place to be able to end a pandemic so why can't we use that that same infrastructure that's been in place to to get COVID under control, to get HIV-AIDS under control. And and that's the thing, that that HIV was the only global pandemic that was still active when COVID got got classified Mm. as a pandemic. The fact is is that it has been a pandemic for 40 years, and yet, um, I hate to say it, um, if HIV-AIDS had affected rich, white, straight people in the same way that COVID has, then we probably would have a cure
1: interesting well if people are listening and you know also getting quite angry and wanting to help out what should they be doing do you think alex
0: yeah so um find a way to make a difference so if you go to our, our website userpates.org um there's a different way that you can get involved in our campaign we've got a number of, of groups around the country from uh, london and and brighton all the way up to glasgow um in scotland and and across the country Um, And so please uh, get in touch with us and see if there's a local group. If there isn't a local group, hey, we'll help you to set one up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, And there's also lots of other wonderful organizations out there. So our our parent organizations are both Restless Development, which is a youth-led development agency, and Stop AIDS, which is a, a charity which is uniting uh, the UK's voice on, on the global AIDS pandemic.
1: And as you've proven, you don't have to be young, young to get involved in youth of no. AIDS either. <laughs>
0: absolutely, and and, and, and you know, from a youth of AIDS perspective, yes, absolutely, please do get involved. But there are so many incredible organisations out there that need activists support campaigners and if there are people who are struggling uh with uh, either prevention or with living with hiv the Terrence and trust is also amazing as well
1: (laughs) oh fantastic well alex it's been a delight talking to you and keep on fighting the fight because you know hand on heart it really is life-saving work that you're doing isn't it Thanks very much. A big thank you to Alex from Youth Stop AIDS. I feel ashamed that I hadn't heard of that organisation before, Um, but wonderful to hear about all the work that they're doing. If you want to get involved or if you want to donate or just find out a little bit more, their website is youthstopaids.org. Well, that's pretty much it from me, Emma Goswell, this week. By the way, if you are in Manchester or anywhere near it, don't forget to go to the HIV Vigil tomorrow night. You don't need a Pride ticket. It's a free event all to raise money for the George House Trust who do brilliant work working with those living with HIV. I'll be there with my candle aloft and a tear in my eye, but hope in my heart. Right, I'll see you lot in September. Stay safe. Have a wonderful rest of your bank holiday.